Sometimes getting the final judgment is the easy part. Now trying to actually get and squeeze the money and get paid on it is the actual difficult part. Final judgment is simply an order of the court that someone owes somebody money. Mm -hmm. So in the case of our clients, it's that a borrower, a, a member, owes them money on a judgment. And so it's just a legal proclamation, a legal determination that money is owed. And once you have a final judgment, it opens you up to or allows you to take advantage of certain remedies under the law. Yep. But it does not result in payment. It's not a specific order by the court that the debtor has to pay you. Sure. It's just an order that the debtor owes you money. Yep. There are no defenses anymore to that debt. That debt is parties really can't argue about the what is actually owed. The court has made that. Welcome to Banking on Credit Unions, your leading law podcast dedicated to credit union matters. Hosted by Jim Sorensen from the elite team at SVL Law, where they specialize in collections, bankruptcy, and foreclosure law designed for credit unions. From landmark cases to innovative legal strategies, Banking on Credit Unions podcast is here to shine a light on the legal pathways impacting your credit union. If you want to uncover legal insights designed just for you, listen and join the conversation. Let's get started. Welcome, Jim. It's great to be able to sit down here with you and discuss um, different issues. And I know today we're going to talk about final judgments and what a credit union can do to try to on it. Um, so welcome to Banking on Credit Unions. I am Blair Boyd, and I'm sitting down with my partner, Jim Sorensen. Um, this is where we discuss the credit union industry and the issues and challenges facing them in an ever-changing environment. I did want to remind everyone to go to our website, svllaw.com, where you can find all of our podcasts as well as a host of other information on us and what we do. So back to the show. Welcome, Jim. How's it going today? It's going great. Going great. I'm excited to be here to talk about the law and credit unions. And so what are we talking about today? Today, I want to discuss final judgments and kind of give a step-by-step guide on what a credit union can do to try to collect on that final judgment. As I've heard and have always said, sometimes getting the final judgment is the easy part. Now trying to actually get and squeeze the money and get paid on it is the actual difficult part. So off, what, what is a final judgment? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I think is so often misunderstood. It's misunderstood certainly by the public at large, but it's misunderstood by our clients and people who've worked in the industry for a while. And final judgment is simply an order of the court that someone owes somebody money. Mm -hmm. So in the case of our clients, it's that a borrower, a member owes them money on a judgment. And so it's just a legal proclamation, a legal determination that money is owed. And once you have a final judgment, it opens you up to or allows you to take advantage of certain remedies under the law. But it does not result in payment. It's not a specific order by the court that the debtor has to pay you. It's just an order that the debtor owes you money. There are no defenses anymore to that debt. That debt is parties really can't argue about the what is actually owed. The court has made that determination. Sure. How long is a judgment good for here in Florida? Yeah, so in Florida, judgment is good for 20 years, and that, but that's going to vary from state to state. Different mm-hmm. states have different laws on this. The life of a judgment or the statute of limitations of a judgment. So in, in Florida, it's 20 years. In Georgia, where I'm also licensed and we practice, is seven years. So quite a difference between Florida and Georgia. And like I said, other states would have their own timetables on that. 
What is the first steps a credit union should do once a final judgment is entered? Yeah, so once they obtain a final judgment, the first step that needs to happen is to get that final judgment recorded so that it is a lien on the debtor's non-exempt property. So if John Doe, if you get a, if the credit union, ABC credit union gets a judgment against John Doe, then ABC credit union wants to know that judgment is a lien on John Doe's non-exempt assets. And so you, each state, again, this is going to vary, but in Florida, what you have to do is you, there are, it's a two-step process. So if we're talking about real estate, real property, that judgment to be a lien must be recorded in the public record where the judgment, where the real property is located. And that judgment has to be certified, meaning it's a certified copy of the judgment, and then it must be recorded. And that creates what's what we call a judgment lien on all non-exempt property in the county where it's recorded. In Florida, if you wanted to, you could record it in six, all 67 counties of Florida. Usually that's not done. Usually it's recorded in the county where the debtor resides. But if we knew, if a debtor lived in uh, Leon County where we're located, and we knew that they had property over in Panama City, they had a vacation rental or a vacation property over in Panama City in Bay County, we could record that judgment in Bay County and that becomes a lien or would become a lien on any non-exempt real property they own in Bay County. For personal property, as a general rule, the way you get a lien on personal property in Florida is you record the lien, you record a judgment lien certificate with the Florida Secretary of State, and that judgment lien certificate is good on most personal property throughout the state of Florida. Georgia is a little bit different in recording a lien. In Georgia, there's what's called a writ of FIFE, and that writ of FIFE has to be issued by the clerk after you obtain the judgment, and that writ of FIFE is docketed or recorded in the county where a property is located, and that creates a lien on the debtor's non-exempt property. So it's again, it involves recording. It's just a different process in Georgia, and like I said, each state would have their own process. If that judgment was taken to another state, their process would be a little different than Florida and Georgia. Sure. What is the time? How long are those good, those liens good for? Yeah, so the judgment liens are good for, again, this is going to vary from state to state. Sure. It's also going to vary the type of lien. So in Georgia, your liens are good for the life of the judgment, seven years. Judgment's good for seven years. The lien's good for the life of the judgment. So it's the same timetable, seven years. It's simpler. Florida has these differing time periods. While your judgment is good for 20 years, the judgment lien on real property is only good for 10 years. Yep. And the judgment lien on personal property is only good for five years. Mm -hmm. So your judgment itself could outlast or outlive the actual judgment lien in Florida. Okay. What, what's a good place to start if you don't have much information on a defendant once that final judgment is entered? Yeah, so the ABC Credit Union has a judgment against John Doe. John Doe owes the credit union $12,133.53. Just made that off the top of my head. And so the question is, how do we get John Doe to pay? And what happens a lot of times is the information the client had at the time they made the loan to John Doe 
is now stale. It's sure. several years old. We may not know where John Doe now works. Yep. We don't know where he now banks because he's defaulted on his loans and stopped paying and probably moved bank accounts. And so the credit union doesn't have enough information on how to go about garnishing or levying in order to get the judgment paid. So they've got to engage in what we call discovery, more particularly post-judgment discovery. Mm -hmm. And this can be done through the courts or it can be done outside the courts. There's ways to do asset searches and look through property records and find certain information outside of the court. But there's some things that can only be uncovered or obtained through the court. And so that really is the post-judgment discovery. We, You have a couple different methods to get information. You can send the debtor, borrower, defendant the interrogatories. These are written questions that they must answer under oath. So we can ask questions like, where are you currently employed? What is your rate of pay? How often are you paid? Where do you bank? Mm -hmm. What's your bank account? We can ask questions like that. They're required to answer them. We can also request documents, production of documents. So we can request copies of their tax returns. We can request bank records. We can request pay stubs. We can request information on real estate property and the like. We can also depose the debtor. Yep. Depositions where the debtor is forced to appear at a set time and place and be questioned under oath in front of a court reporter. So the court reporter transcribes the conversation, the, the questions and the answers down at the deposition. We can include with that a request for production where they have to bring documents in and then we can ask them questions about the documents. What's this $10,000 leaving your account? Where did that go? Sure. What were you using that for? Those types of questions. And then we can also subpoena information from third parties. If we know they're banking at uh, Bank of America, we could and it go and request bank statements or banking records from Bank of America or whatever the case may be. That all that process of post-judgment discovery is how we gather information on a debtor and try to determine can they pay this debt, how collectible are they, what are the options to force payment of the debt. Mm -hmm. Now I know in Florida, well, I'm sure most places, there's no no such thing as debtor's prison anymore. You can't put in anybody in jail for not paying a debt. But is there a way that, or is there a outcome where a defendant could be actually held in contempt and taken into custody for, for not helping in this process? Yes, there is. And you're right. This is an area that I think sometimes causes confusion, but there is no debtor's prison in America. You can't go to prison for not paying your debts. But you can end up in prison or you can end up in jail, I guess more accurately, you can end up incarcerated because you've ignored the court orders and court processes. So mm -hmm. like I said, the law requires a defendant to or the, the judgment debtor to respond to this discovery. And so if the defendant is found to be in contempt of court, meaning they're intentionally failing to abide by a lawful court order and they're just refusing to cooperate. The judge can order that they be held in, in jail, incarcerated, pending their cooperation. And that cooperation can come in various forms. It is not uncommon that mm -hmm. we see defendants end up incarcerated because they did not abide by the court order. Now, this 
takes several steps. Sure. And our clients who are familiar with this sometimes get frustrated that it takes so long. But the idea of locking somebody up, taking away their freedom, should not be easy. Sure. And, yes, and it's not. But it can reach that serious level. And what always amazes us and what certainly amazes new employees who come to work for us or new clients who are clients who are new to this process or maybe their employees who are new to this process, they're amazed that people allow it to reach this point because at this point they've had to have ignored a lot of mail yep. and a lot of notices from our office and from the court and the sheriff having visited them and warned them, yep. and they still ignore it. And the classic, in, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and just hope it goes away. Yes. And, and then, of course, we get the call from the family member, how dare you throw Johnny in jail for not paying his debt. Yeah. That's, that's not what Johnny's in jail for. Yes, certainly. Johnny's in jail because he ignored everything that has been sent to him. And uh, this process, unfortunately, from our client's perspective, and it takes time and money, to get to the end of the process. And we, we certainly don't want to see the defendants incarcerated because that doesn't resolve the debt, but we need them to provide the information. Sure. We need that to assess their ability to pay and, and obviously to enforce our clients' rights yep. under the judgment. Do you like what you've heard so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Head on over to svllaw.com and subscribe to our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Now back to the show. Now you mentioned earlier garnishment. Give us a brief overview. What is a garnishment? So a garnishment is a post-judgment remedy. It exists in most states, I, I, I can't say all states, I don't know, but Florida and Georgia both have garnishments. The process is a little bit different between each state, but they're generally the same thing. And what a garnishment is, the is the process by which a creditor, a judgment creditor, is able to reach either monies in the hands of third parties that belong to the judgment debtor. Like a bank or, account? Yes, like a bank account. Okay or a stream of income like wages, wages. Yep. or salaries. And so those are the two most common types of garnishments sure. or bank account garnishments and what we'd call wage garnishments. But there's other examples of garnishments that can come into play. Those are just the most common. Sure. What um, Are there any exemptions that a debtor or creditor or a judgment debtor would have in a garnishment action? Yes, and these can vary from state to state and they also some exemptions exist under federal law so this is what makes collections a little bit complicated mm -hmm. is you have federal law which provides certain exemptions for example we we cannot you cannot garnish social security sure. benefits from somebody that's a common example of a federal garnishment protection but there's also state exemptions. So in Georgia, there is not an exemption on wages. So you can, aside from any limitations at the federal level, there's no supplemental Georgia protection of wages of garnishment. But in Florida, we have what's called the head of household or head of family exemption. And what that exemption is that you cannot garnish the wages of a head of household without their consent mm -hmm. and and of course the definite issue that comes up is who's the head of the household yep. what what qualifies someone to be the head of a household and there there's a definition in the statute 
that says if someone provides more than half the support for a dependent, then they qualify as a head of household. But there's questions about are they really providing half the support of a dependent? What is a dependent? Unfortunately, those are some things that are left up to the court to decide. Sure. And uh, those things can be litigated and debated and judges have to decide on the individual facts of a case. Yep. And I know and from my experience, a lot of judges usually tend to side on the favor of the judgment debtor in these type of situations. But, but yeah, it can be tough. What are other, other options? I know we, we mentioned a levy. Tell us what that is and, and the process that a credit union can do to levy some sort of personal property. Yeah, so a levy is, a, is another post-judgment remedy. It, it's the process by where the creditor is able to have property of the judgment debtor seized and sold to satisfy the judgment. So that property could be everything from re- real property, real estate, you can levy on real estate, or it could be personal property. We could levy on a car, we could levy on jewelry, we could levy on, you know, Farm animals? Farm animals, yes. Yeah. Farm animals. Yep. And uh, I've done that before. We uh, once, long time ago, levied on five horses, or at least started the process to levy on five horses. And uh, the uh, the matter ended up getting resolved. One, levying on livestock is very expensive. It's not like a car, and the creditor has to pay to to store what you're levying upon while the levy process takes effect. For those who aren't familiar, you the sheriff goes out and seizes the property, stores it, there's advertisement of the sheriff's sale, and then the sheriff's sale is conducted, and that process may take 30 days. And so in the case of a car, the sheriff's got places to store a car, but sure. the sheriffs in Florida generally don't have places to store horses <laughs> or cattle or you know whatever you want to that would be livestock animals. And so the sheriff has to find a farm to keep the horses. That's wow. going to cost yeah. money. Someone to feed the horses. They have to have the horses checked by a vet to make sure they're healthy because the sheriff's on the hook for if anything happens to the property while it's in the sheriff's possession, the sheriff could be liable. The sheriff doesn't want the horses dying and find out after the fact that they had some disease. They weren't. Once we started down that road and the client saw how much it was going to cost, didn't really make sense. The debtor was willing to offer a settlement and uh, that matter got resolved. But sure. we almost went through with levying and uh-huh. five horses. That, that would have been that would have been interesting. Yeah. And obviously one of the more unique situations I've run into. I bet. Are there any exemptions in a levy? Yeah. So the again the exemptions are going to vary from state to state. So in Florida, Florida's what's known as debtor's haven or debtor's heaven. So different than Georgia. Georgia has less exemptions. Georgia, there's a homestead exemption in Georgia. Um, Your homestead exemption in Georgia for the purposes of levy, if you were to go levy on the debtor's home, they have a $21,500 exemption in the property. And Florida's exemption is not based on a dollar amount for homestead. It's based on the size of the land, the lot, the real estate. If you live outside the city limits, it's 160 acres. If you're inside city limits, it's a half an acre. And it does depend upon if you bought the property and you lived outside of the city limits and then you got annexed in, the rule that's going to apply to you is where was it located when you bought the property? So if I acquire a property when it's in 
and it's in the county and then later the city annexes is in, I don't lose my exemption by the annexation by the city. So Florida's exemption, it doesn't matter what the property's worth. Yeah. So you could, you know, have a shack on 160 acres and it's exempt, or you could have the Taj Mahal 160 acres and it's exempt. And then when you get into other types of properties, you have exemptions. There's some general exemptions in Florida and Georgia for personal property. There's exemptions for certain unique items, but as a general rule, the big exemptions are on homesteads, sure. real estate. On your car in Florida, you've got an exemption of $1,000 per owner. So if you got two people owning a car, they could exempt two thousand. There's some other exemptions they might be able to stack on top. Yeah. Um, so there are exemptions that play in, and those guide you on whether or not it makes sense to levy on a vehicle. Sure. And Especially if they if they still owe a, another lien holder on that as right. well. Right. Right. The levy is going to be subject to any outstanding lien. If they owe Bank of America twenty thousand dollars on the F one fifty and the Credit unions levying upon it. That that truck better be worth more than the twenty thousand and the cost of the levy sure. and the potential exemptions that the debtor might raise. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know we touched on liens on property at the beginning. What about? Is there anything unique we could do vehicles after a judgment is entered? Yes. Vehicles or things like vehicles, what we would call titled property that has a certificate of title, whether we're talking Florida or Georgia. There is a process in each state on the ability to get a judgment recorded mm -hmm. on the title, get a judgment lien recorded on the title. So if the member borrower judgment debtor has a car that is under lien to Ford Motor Credit and the credit union wants to get a second lien on the vehicle that would prevent them from being able to trade it in, yeah. refinance it, sell it. They can do that. And so there's a process in a way to get a judgment lien recorded on the title. In Florida, it does require a court, a motion and an order of the court. In Georgia, it's much simpler. We can simply take a judgment that we have and send it off to the Department of Revenue and with pay the small fee and you get your lien recorded. Wow. So Georgia is much more streamlined in that regard. And again, this would apply, I'm using vehicles as the sure. example here, but this would apply to any other title property in the state. So in Florida, a boat that's titled yeah. in an RV, those types of things would apply as well. All right. I know we, we hit on some of the big areas there. Anything else you think we miss we need to talk about? I think we talk about this with our clients all the time if, if in the world for credit unions where they have a lot of judgments. Because judgments have a long life, seven years in Georgia, mm -hmm. 20, 20 years in Florida. And, and when we say the judgment life is seven and 20 years, of course, they can be renewed. They can be extended beyond that. So you can t file an action on a judgment that's about to expire and you can extend it another 20 years in Florida. In Georgia, you can extend it another seven years. And because judgments can have these long lives, it becomes really important that the credit union have a way and a process in place on how to manage those judgments. Sure. If what happens a lot of times is the credit union changes management, the leadership team of the collection department changes, and they can't tell you what judgments were obtained five years ago, sure. 10 years ago, 
15 years ago. If we're talking about Florida, 15 years ago, that judgment obtained 15 years ago is still good. Yeah, with a lot um, of interest on it. <clears throat> with a lot of interest, and that judgment debtor may now be on their feet. They may now be in a position to pay the judgment off or at least settle a substantial amount of that judgment. Yeah. And so the credit union really needs to, if they're going to spend the time and effort and money to obtain a judgment, they need a process in place yeah. on managing these judgment, judgment management. And uh, this is something that I talk about a lot with our clients. I've written about it. I've spoken about it. It's a lot of work yep. to set it up and do it right. And unfortunately, most clients, most credit unions I see don't do it right. Yeah. But there are some that do, and those that do are collecting more money and making more money. Yeah. To me, it's just, it's crucial if you're going to do this. Sure. And if I could stress one thing to anyone listening to this who is in charge of a collection department or has any say over what a collection department does, it would be that thing. Do Does that collection department have a good process for tracking judgments and making sure they're being handled and worked and, and leveraged for money recoveries for the sure. credit union. That to me is the one thing that is often overlooked in this process. They worry about how are we going to collect the money? How are we making sure we have the right lawyer hired? And those things are all important. Of course. But if you don't have this process, the rest of it doesn't matter. Yep. Very true. Very true. As always, it's great to sit down and talk with you. I want to remind everyone, go subscribe our podcast. You can find it at svllaw.com forward slash podcast. And great. Thanks talking for you, Jim. Yep. Thanks for joining us this week on Banking on Credit Unions. Make sure to visit our website, www.svllaw.com forward slash podcast where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. When it comes to credit union law, the Sorensen Van Leuven Law Firm has you covered. Reach out to us at svllaw.com because every credit union deserves top legal representation. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.